0: listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. This morning, I want to invite you in your Bibles or on your devices to... The Book of Galatians. Once again, this morning we're going to be in chapter two of that book. You've probably heard the phrase "drawing a line in the sand," and it's this phrase that means that at some point there there is an, an event that happens, and then when you move beyond that, every decision and the consequences from that point on are decided in irreversible. In fact, that phrase, I even did some research trying to figure out, okay, where in the world did this phrase even come from? And no one really knows, but a lot of people credit it to um, William Travis. I was one that did not get to grow up with Texas history, so a lot of this was new to me. But it was the scene in the Alamo where the Alamo is surrounded and Santa Ana is there. And he sends a letter into Colonel Travis It was demanding their uh, surrender. Travis brings the troops together and he reads this letter before them. And he then, it says, it goes on to say that he then draws a line in the dirt with his boot. He's asking the men, which side of the line are you going to stand on? Are you going to stand and fight? Are you going to run as a coward? As I was reading, it said that when all the men except one were standing with Travis, he answered Santa Anna's letter with a cannon shot. And uh, so there's this idea, this picture of there's a line in the sand, a line in the dirt. Which side are you going to stand on? Well, it's so interesting, we're going through the book of Galatians this spring, and This year will mark the 500th anniversary of a very important line-in-the-sand moment. In fact, it's celebrated every year uh, alongside another holiday that many of us are familiar with, Halloween. So on October 31st of this year, we will celebrate the 500th anniversary. Because in 1517, there was a man named Martin Luther. He was a German professor and a monk. Luther came to reject many of the teachings and practices of the Roman Catholic Church that he was growing up in. One of his major problems he had was that the belief was that you could be made right with God. You could have freedom from God's punishment by purchasing indulgences. So you did something, you could then go buy your way out of punishment. As Martin Luther would been studying through Romans and Galatians, he just could not reconcile that thought. But on October of that evening, he wrote a letter to his bishop. Uh, his name was Albert Mainz, and he fixed that to the door of the church in Wittenberg, of All Saints Church. And that letter has been referred to as the 95 Thesis. Word quickly traveled from Germany, made it all the way to the Vatican. And on June the 15th, 1920, the Pope warned Luther that if he did not recant what he wrote in his letter, he would be excommunicated. He would be kicked out from the church and a line was being drawn in the sand. Well, on October the 18th of the following year, Luther was ordered to appear before a council that was titled the Diet of Worms. The room was packed and they brought in this man that everyone was thinking about everyone was reading and hearing about they brought him before the council to see would this well-known monk would he take back the words he had written well, luther asked for the evening to think about and to pray about what was laid out before him the next morning he's paraded back into that room packed house everyone eager to hear the answer from Martin Luther. Luther stands before everyone and he spoke these famous words. Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the Scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in the councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves. I'm bound by the Scriptures and I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. He says, I cannot, and I will not recant anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. May God help me. Amen. And that was the moment that sparked the Protestant Reformation. And so this morning, I want us to talk and I want us to see about another line being drawn in the sand. And so we're going to pick up from Paul's letter in chapter 2, beginning at verse 1 today. He says, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus, Along with me. So after 14 years, he goes back to Jerusalem. Now, in the book of Acts, Luke records five different visits of Paul or Saul to Jerusalem. The first one we saw last week is after Damascus, Acts 9. We see that Paul spent three years in Damascus, probably went down into Arabia, but he goes back to Jerusalem for only about 15 days. Well, then he fears for his life, and he goes to his hometown of uh, Sardis. So he is there. Visit two, it's a famine. In Acts 11, Paul and Barnabas traveled from Antioch, heading south, and they go to Jerusalem, bringing relief to the churches that are there. Acts 15, we get the Jerusalem Council. The fourth trip is the end of his second missionary journey. The fifth one, his final visit where he is imprisoned in Caesarea. So this is how I understand this. When Paul says after 14 years, he's going back to that moment of the Damascus calling and conversion. So after 14 years after his conversion, he leaves and he comes to Jerusalem. So I put this as part of the famine visit. He's coming with Barnabas. I believe they're bringing money. They're bringing relief to help the Jerusalem church. But notice who is with him. First of all, it says Barnabas. Now, you remember Barnabas? Barnabas is that, that encourager. That He's the one that Jerusalem sends up to Antioch to find out what in the world is going on with the gospel and these Gentiles. Well, he goes and he sees the Spirit poured out on them. He sees Gentiles coming to faith and no one knows what to do. Barnabas says, I know. I'm going to go get Saul. And he brings Saul back. So Barnabas is a Jewish man. He followed the Jewish customs, the Jewish laws, the ceremonies, even circumcision. So Barnabas is a Jew among Jews, highly respected and valued. He's a Jewish Christian. But there's someone else that is with Paul and Barnabas, and it's a man named Titus. So, Titus is an uncircumcised Greek. He's an outsider. But Titus is a Gentile Christian. So, Saul has two groups, two completely different groups represented before him. Two groups that would never associate. But look at the purpose of Paul's visit in verse 2. So I went up because of a revelation. So he goes up because something is revealed to him. Now, we're not for sure exactly, meaning, but God directed him to go to Jerusalem. Could have been that God said to Saul, Saul, you need to go to Jerusalem, take Barnabas, take Titus with you, and go down there. Or it could also be A prophet came up named Agabus who tells about the famine that's going to happen. But some way there is a revelation that God reveals, you need to go to Jerusalem. Because the point is, Saul is not going to Jerusalem because the uh, apostles told him to. Not even that they asked him to. He was directed by God, not man. But notice what he does. So, I went up because of a revelation and I set before them. Though privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. So, Paul calls this private meeting together with these church leaders, and we're not exactly sure who. I imagine it's probably Peter, it's probably James and John, and some of the other leaders in these Jerusalem churches. But notice what he does. He went to set before them. He's going to lay everything out on the table. And he wants them to see, he wants them to hear the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles. Now, we have to be so clear about this. And this is why it's so important, parents, to come to the meeting next week, that the gospel, the gospel is not something that we do. The gospel is, how is a sinner reconciled with a holy God? A person comes into this world. Every single person, as godly as your child may be, they come into this world totally opposed to God. There's nothing that we can do to take care of our greatest problem, our sin. So God the Father, He sends His Son to live the life that we could never live. In fact, if we had a hundred chances, we could never get it right. But He also comes to die the death that we deserve because of our sinfulness. So Jesus, He he takes our sinfulness as if it was His own. That sin they did, yes, that's on me. He then turns around and He gives sinners His perfect righteousness. Is the gospel. And a person is reconciled or or justified before God because of what Christ does in the great exchange. And we are only simply to trust in that. And that's what Saul keeps proclaiming over and over again to these Gentiles. And the Holy Spirit is coming upon them, and they're putting their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation. But as you know, every time God begins to move, the adversary is there. And some false teachers, they're coming in behind Saul. They're beginning to teach and begin to change the gospel. And they're saying, yes, Jesus, of course. But you must also need to do something yourself. It cannot be all up to Jesus. And you would say, yes, him, but you also need to follow our dietary laws. Join in our ceremonies. If you're a man, you need to be circumcised. Basically, this is what they were saying. In order for you to be reconciled with God, You must first give up your identity and take on ours. Because after all, we're God's chosen people. You have to give all of your identity up. You must become one of us. Then God can accept you. And this is where we begin seeing Paul drawing the line in the sand. Because he stands on the other side of this. He says, no, that is not true. And the Judaizers are standing on the other. So notice why he lays out this message at the end of verse 2. In order, in order to make sure, I need to make sure that I was not running or I had not run in vain. Now, this, this should strike us as odd because it seems at first glance is that Saul he's coming to them to set his message out before the people to make sure he's right. He wants to make sure that he was not laboring or running in vain. And it seems as if Saul's kind of unsure, and he's looking for confirmation. But he isn't looking for confirmation at all. He is not looking for their stamp of approval. In fact, he wants to make sure you understand, I am not here because you requested me. I am here because of a revelation of God. In fact, it was revealed to me. So he lays it out before them. And so what is he he saying when he says, I'm not running in vain, or had I not run in vain? What Paul is saying is that he wants to see, he wants to see, are you going to be in agreement that a Jew and a Gentile both reconciled with God as they are? Through faith alone, in Christ alone. So, Saul is not coming with any doubts at all. In fact, the gospel that he'd been preaching for 14 years, but he feared that his past and his present ministry was going to continue to be hindered. And Saul is coming and he's ready to draw that line in the stand because I believe he is passionate about these young Christians that he is leading to the Lord and watching mature. But Saul also. He is deeply concerned for God's church. And he doesn't want any major divisions in the church. He believes in unity. In fact, he's seeking this. He wants a close partnership with these Jerusalem leaders. But would Saul find the unity that he was seeking? See, Saul, he comes to Jerusalem with two completely different men. Exhibit A. Exhibit B. And he's going to set these two men. And he's going to see what they as supposedly Christians are going to do. He walks in to see will they have a problem accepting Barnabas and Titus. And he knows they're not going to have any problem accepting Barnabas. I mean, Barnabas is one of them. But then there stands Titus. I'll be honest, as I've been reading through this book, that I feel, I feel for Titus. Because here's a man, a complete outsider. These men would have seen Barnabas. They would have been excited. They would have probably wanted to hear what was going on and greet him well. But there on the other side stands Titus. And I don't know if you've ever been in that situation where you're just not for sure if you're going to be accepted. And how vulnerable, how you feel walking into a situation knowing, are they going to accept me? And so here's Titus, and this is the line in the sand moment. Look at verse 3. But even Titus, who was with me, he was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slip in to spy out our freedom that we have in Jesus Christ, so that they might bring us into slavery. So Saul brings Titus to see, are they going to accept him as he is? Or would they reject him? Man, this must have been an intense moment. Because Saul, he doesn't know what they're going to do. He has no idea. Are they going to accept this man or are they going to reject him? And there, and there is Titus. I mean, can you imagine what it took for him to stand there and to see, are you going to accept me? Because, listen, Jews and Gentiles, they don't mix. They didn't invite each other to their kids' birthday parties. You didn't shop at the same places. You, you didn't go to school together. You certainly wouldn't worship together. They lived completely separate lives. And now here is this Gentile standing before them. And for me, as I read this... it it's funny, you look through the, all the little details and you start noticing things about the sentences. and It's almost like Paul, is, he's so fed up that in fact in verse 3 he breaks from everything he's doing and there's all these problems with certain verbs he's using because I think Paul is getting to the point. He is sick and tired of having to engage in this debate. And he is ready to finally end it all. He is ready to draw the line in the sand, and he hopes. He hopes that they will move over to the side where he is standing, and there will be unity among him and the church. But I believe Paul has gotten to the point that he is willing to cut all ties because of what's at stake. So Paul, he's going to recount again the repeated over and over attempts Of these false brothers. Look at verse 4 there. He says yet because of these false brothers. Secretly brought in. Who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ. So that they might bring us into slavery. Because you see when we see this. We're standing before the gospel. That's what's laid out before the people. Before the leaders. And there are two ways that you can run from the gospel. And in verse 4, we see them both. He says they came to spy on their freedom, but also to make them slaves again, to bring them back into bondage under the law. And so the first way you can run from the gospel is the idea of licentiousness. And this is what this means, because we see the words freedom in Christ. And we can begin to misuse that phrase because a person can read that and say, that's just too easy, that's too simple. You're telling me there's freedom in Christ and I can do whatever I want to do and God is obligated to forgive me? And you simply are running from the gospel. Because freedom in Christ is the thought behind it is this. It's not that we get to go and do what we want. Freedom in Christ is is that you are not free from having to obey God to make you acceptable to Him. In fact, I love how Tim Keller puts it. He says, freedom in Christ allows you to say with complete confidence, I am more sinful and wicked than I would ever dare to admit, but I am more loved and accepted in Christ than I could ever imagine. and That is freedom in Christ, that we no longer have to earn God's acceptance by our obedience. Christ has done that for us. But the freedom in Christ allows me, with all all confidence, to say, Yes, I am more sinful and I am more wicked than I could ever imagine. But I am more loved and accepted in Christ than I could ever dare wrap my mind around. But the other way. That you can run from the gospel. It's what they're trying to bring the people, to bring the men back into. And it's a word that we could often use as legalism. And I think we all kind of have our definition that kind of works well for us. But legalism can be a thing where we create a list of convictions. And that's what they had done. There are certain things you should eat. God said that. There are certain things you should wear. There are certain things you should stay away from. And we create this list of things that we believe makes us acceptable. And you might have some convictions of your own. Maybe you've thought, you know what, I'm not going to watch anything above a PG-13 movie. Or maybe you've said, you know what, alcohol will never again touch my lips. Maybe you've got a strong conviction of, of homeschooling or private school or public school. There is nothing wrong with convictions. God can give you convictions and you should follow them. But it becomes legalism when we believe it gains us more acceptance with God. And then you hold those uh, convictions out for other people as the standard. And that's what the Judaizers were doing. They were saying, no, you need to live according to what we say. And we take those convictions, and it can easily become legalism. So notice how serious Saul is about not adding or taking away from the gospel, because that's what both do, licentiousness and legalism. They're taking away, and they're running from the gospel. Look at verse 5. To them, not for one moment did we yield in submission, not even for a moment, So that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. So at this moment, Saul was not going to back away at all. Because the gospel was a non-negotiable item for Saul. Saul was making it abundantly clear that the gospel was an all or nothing discussion. They would either affirm it or they would reject it. He wasn't coming to sit down and say, you know what? Let's find a compromise. You bring the best of what you think the gospel is. I'll bring the best of what I say it is. And hopefully we can come to an agreement. This was not a compromise. It was either going to be a total affirmation or a total denial. And Saul knows that Jews and Gentiles, they are accepted by God through faith in Christ without distinction. And that the church it should do the same. And this is a huge moment for Christianity. Could there be reconciliation? Could there be unity among people that are different? So here's Saul, there's Barnabas, and there's Titus. Would the church embrace them together? So in verses 6 through 10, it's One long sentence that Paul does. And so let me read those and then kind of let's see, would they be accepted? And from those who seemed to be influential, what they were, it made no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised just as Peter had been instructed with the gospel to the circumcised. For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked in me of mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. And so the answer is yes. They accepted Paul's message and his authority. They did not try to correct or even to modify his message, but they recognized the divine source and they affirmed the truth and the completeness. And what we're seeing is the power of the gospel to reconcile people that are different. In fact, of different tribes and tongues and nations. And I think this is a message that we probably need to hear more and more of. That the gospel is the only thing that truly has the power to reconcile people of different tribes and tongues and nations. So, as a point of application, I want to speak to a very important, I I think, delicate topic. I want to speak into the idea of prejudices. You see, here's the thing, is that we all, we all have some form or fashion of prejudices and even racism. In fact, it's it's born out of our sinful nature, and sometimes it is nurtured. By our environment. And at the root of all prejudices, it all boils down to pride. But I hope and I pray that our homes and our church would become more and more diverse. Because diversity, I've come to believe, is a beautiful thing. And we are seeing it happen before our eyes in the book of Galatians. And it is only possible through the gospel. So when we meet or interact or serve or love others of different backgrounds and different cultures, it is not that we don't see or we don't notice the difference in people. It isn't we're blind to this, or we're blind to that. No, we should see, we should notice the differences around us and we should see it as a beautiful thing. But when we see people and People are different from us, and we'll even look at this next week, and we will see that no one is immune to their prejudices. We should see people and we should embrace our differences, and we should celebrate that. So then how is, then, how is the gospel the only cure for the prejudices and the racism and the things that are going on within us? How is the gospel the only cure for it? Because the gospel is the only thing that says, you know what, I, I'm fully known, I'm fully accepted, and I'm fully loved in Christ Jesus. And when we realize the beauty of that ourselves, that we can honestly say that, yes, he fully knows me. Everything about me, every scar, every wart, whatever it is, he knows me. But he accepts me. And he fully loves me. When we truly realize that about ourselves, we want to live that out in the reality before us with other people. So if you've never heard about or read the book Bloodlines by John Piper, you need to put it on your list. Because listen to the beauty of the way he puts it. The bloodline of Christ. The bloodline of Christ is deeper than the bloodlines of race. The death and the resurrection of the Son of God for sinners is the only sufficient power to bring the bloodlines of race into the single bloodline of the cross. Because listen, I can't stop thinking about Titus and, and what courage it took for him to stand up, to come before a group of people that had never accepted him. To be completely vulnerable before that group of men that had always probably treated him that he was less of a human. The only way, the only way Titus could have done that was to know that no matter what they say, no matter what they do, I'm fully accepted in Christ. That he had Christ's approval, he had his acceptance, and I believe Titus says that's all I need. You can say what you want. You can think what you want. I hope you would accept me. But if you don't, I know who I am in Christ and nothing else matters. And so this morning, it does not matter what your education, it doesn't matter your social status, it it doesn't even matter your financial status, it doesn't matter the color of your skin. All Believers in Christ get to experience the same freedom. So no matter who you are, no matter what you have done, or where you come from, there's freedom in Christ to be able to say with complete confidence, listen, I am more sinful and more wicked than I would ever dare to admit. But I am more loved and accepted in Christ than I could ever imagine. So some here this morning, you know what I I think that, that you need to hear and believe is that you are fully accepted and loved and fully cherished. Because you know what, you probably have a hard time believing this because you look at your sin, you look at the mess that you've made of your life, you look at your failures and you think God could never love and accept me. You need the gospel. You need the gospel. Some of you here this morning, some of us need to probably painfully hear, you know what, you're more wicked and you're more sinful than you could ever dare to admit. As you look at your life and you see all the good things that you've done or you try to do, you look at other people and maybe even a person you share a home with, and you think, well, at least I'm not as sinful as them. Or look how hard I'm trying. And you see all your striving and your good works and you think, of course. Of course God accepts me. Look how hard I'm trying. You need the gospel as well. What we all need in the great reconciliation that happens is that we are fully known, fully accepted, And fully loved in Christ. And that is the power of the gospel. And that is freedom in Christ. And Paul says that. That's the line in the sand. Which side are you going to stand on? And I pray that that would be your heartbeat. And that that would be the heartbeat of this church. Let me pray. Lord we come before you with a great picture of different men standing before you and them all being seen in your eyes as fully known, fully accepted, and fully loved. And Father, as sinful beings as we are, that is our only hope, that in you we are known, we are accepted, and we are loved. Its Father, where we live, the homes we represent, the schools we're in, the jobs we have. I pray that we would live that reality out before all those before us. That we would embrace our diversity and see it as a beautiful thing. And that we would all know that freedom that is in your Son, Jesus. That we would be fully known, fully accepted, and fully loved. The Father, is in His name that we think about, we worship, we pray too, that we stand before through the power of Your Spirit. We say amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com.